Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Richard, you know what I always call myself on this podcast, right? Yes, the squishy libertarian. You're the squishy one, Jim. <laughs> right. So I thought it might be a good idea to have an actual libertarian on the show to talk about what this libertarian mindset really involves. What libertarians say that might surprise you, Nick Gillespie. If you gave every parent 30 grand a year to spend on the education of their kid, they would find schools, schools would develop, and the pride in those schools would be far, far better than the ones that are, you know, where where parents and kids are compelled to go. It would change things and it would, it would have a radical effect, but uh, you know, I think it would be liberating. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? I've known Nick a long time. He's been called the intellectual godfather of Reason magazine that has the motto, free minds and free markets, which, as you can imagine, I love. He's the former editor of that magazine, and today he's Reason's editor-at-large. Nick is also the co-author of the book, The Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics can fix what's wrong with America, and he's the host of the Reason Interview podcast. Nick joins us from New York City. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Oh, thanks for having me. It's a real treat. So let's start at the beginning. What is a libertarian? Uh, a libertarian or being libertarian, I, I, I value uh, individual choice. I devalue coercion. I, I believe in a minimal state, or, or certainly a smaller state than we have now, not an anarchist. But I want people to be able to make as many meaningful choices in their life as possible. And that includes in, in politics, in culture, in economics, in sexuality, in lifestyle. So a libertarian is somebody who values uh, individual liberty and, uh, and also the respons responsibility that that entails and is generally skeptical of uh, government controls or even other forms of, of involuntary kind of compulsion. Most political isms, most movements are mischaracterized by their opponents. So how are libertarians misunderstood? I, you know, I think the single biggest thing is that uh, libertarians or to be libertarian means that you are some kind of Ayn Rand on meth hyper individualist, like this atomized individual world where 
Um, nothing is provided by the state or by common uh, society or anything like that. In my experience, what libertarians are about or what a libertarian approach to things is to set people free in order to build the communities that they want to build uh, and the societies. I think the single biggest misinterpretation is that the idea that it really is about I, me, mine. Um, it's not about that. It's about having the freedom to create the, the world that you want to live in, which is almost always going to be inherently and, and powerfully uh, social and communal. So on this episode of How Do We Fix It, we're going to look at a few different issues that both liberals and conservatives have their answers to their policies. That they and want. they're wrong. <laughs> and, and that's exactly where we're going. Now that, by the way, one of the non-misconceptions about libertarians is that they're know-it-alls <laughs> and that they always speak from a vantage point of absolute uh, you know, uh, truth. But it's a really <laughs> interesting thing to me that liberals and conservatives mm -hmm. will disagree on certain policies and the libertarian position will sort of cut that Gordian knot. It will be a third approach that neither side had really thought of that's often much simpler. Let's start with uh, CRT, critical race theory. You know, conservatives right. say all these uh, radical theories about race and white supremacy are being forced on elementary school kids. And some states are trying to make laws against that. And then mm -hmm. liberals say it's all a big myth. It's only taught in law schools. The two sides are arguing about this. What's your take? Yeah. So, you know, this is a great example of where when you emphasize choice over coercion or compulsion, the libertarian approach tends to be very uh, consistent, you know, whether you're talking about something like abortion or education, K through 12 education, which is mandatory in this uh, you know, country. The nut with critical race theory as it is being taught in K through 12 education, I think, is to recognize that it's not textbook critical race theory. Um, you know, it's, it's not the stuff being taught in law school, but it is a story about what it means to be America, what American history is like, what American identity is like. There's many things in a kind of broad critical race theory approach that I find important and interesting and in fact, you know, should be taught. The history and the reality of slavery and other forms of exclusion, uh, the writing into laws as, as if they are natural, you know, uh, just advantages for people who get defined as white. And I, you know, my, all of my grandparents were immigrants from uh, Europe in the mid 19 teens. Uh, my Italian grandparents, when they showed up, were not quite white, but they definitely died as white people, you know, and can, understanding the construction of whiteness is a powerful thing that we should be doing just as we should be, you know, uh, kind of having kids and people understand how, how do you construct what it means to be black or African-American or Latino or Italian, et cetera. But the, the real question here is who gets to control the stories that um, are being taught in in public education and my model which would be uh, would be that there should be a lot of different stories being taught because there's a lot of different realities that people want to reflect and people want to investigate that mirror their experience and their understanding and the way you get around these debates over critical race theory or school prayer or whatever is by setting kids free and setting parents free so that they can attend the schools that they want to if we lived in a world of universal school choice, uh, all of this would go away. And not, not the debates over what theory is better, or what identity, what, what narrative is more relevant and more meaningful, but the, the nasty political squabbles would disappear. 
What about the argument, though, that, that school choice undermines public education? Yeah. That I've, there are many communities, and I live in one, where there's enormous pride in the local public school system. A lot of money, a lot of uh, togetherness comes. A lot of the community's identity comes from pride in the public schools. That would be weakened if there was a greater, much greater emphasis on uh, school choice, wouldn't it? Um, I actually, I disagree uh, with you uh, broadly on that. Uh, the state of New York spends on average about $30,000 per student across. And, you know, there are, there's wide variation in all the school districts, uh, you know, in, in the state and things like that. But if you gave every parent 30 grand a year to spend on the education of their kid, they would find schools, schools would develop, and the pride in those schools would be far, far better than the ones that are, you know, where, where parents and kids are compelled to go. It would change things and it would, it would have a radical effect. But, uh, you know, I think it would be liberating. You know, what we should do is allow more schools to develop and flourish. They can have the public resources to do that. The money should go to the kid not to the school district, not to the teachers union, not to the building or the physical plant. It should go to the kid. Once you do that, a lot of these issues disappear and we would have a far more interesting and better country because there would be many different stories being taught about who we are as Americans and what we should aspire to be. It sounds to me, though, like that would be great for parents who are really concerned about their kids' education mm -hmm. or who are comfortable about thinking about educational concepts and have the time to do that. But for parents, and there are many, many parents mm -hmm. who, you know, they're, they're struggling. And it, the, every day is a, is a challenge in a yeah. way that it isn't for a lot of middle class and well-off parents. Two, two that, things. That this would, this would be a huge challenge and very confusing for them, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, two things to that. One is that I think it's, it's patronizing uh, because it turns out that when you look at the data, mm -hmm. lower income people tend to recognize that education is a major, you know, potential game changer in their kids' lives. So they take this stuff really seriously. And they also, they know what their values are. Um, and they, they're going to go to places that reflect that or that deliver the goods in terms of saying, we're going to teach your kids how to do, you know, reading, writing and arithmetic really well. And we're also going to give them a sense of community and identity. Um, you know, everybody can figure that out. But then the other thing is, is that in any system, you don't need 100% of people to be great consumers, however you want to define that. Um, what you need, once you set in motion markets in, you know, markets are discovery processes, they up the game of everything, it ups the average performance of everybody involved. And then the, the, the one other thing I would say is that, you know, the problem for poor or uh, lower income people, it's not that their schools are um, doing too much for them, it's they can't escape them. The right of exit, the ability to leave something that is not serving you well, whether it's your family, whether it's your country, whether it's your local school district, that's a really powerful uh, tool of empowerment. And that, that fundamental choice is really central and it makes everything better. When, you, when people can leave, you treat them better. Um, and right now schools are not treating kids, particularly poor kids who don't have political capital, who don't have you know, economic capital, they don't treat them very well. Okay, topic two. We talk a lot about free speech and cancel culture on how do we fix it. But a lot of people say, well, you know, what's wrong with criticizing people who say hurtful things? The columnist Michelle Goldberg wrote in the New York Times 
uh, criticizing the idea of cancel culture. She said there was only 426 cases where academic scholars had been targeted for sanction by ideological adversaries. So essentially, what's what's the problem? It's not it's not a real issue. This is, a, I know, a big topic for you. What's the libertarian approach to this question? Well, you know, first off, we need to, uh, you know, make a distinction between cancel culture and criticism. And, you know, what I want, particularly as a kind of liberal in the old kind of continental or enlightenment sense, I want as robust a sphere of public debate and discussion as possible. Criticism is one thing. Cancel culture is not that, but it has to do with trying to get people fired, trying to get people deplatformed, trying to just wipe out any interaction with any kind of debate um, because you disagree with it or you feel like it is going to take over and you don't want it to. So you can create an, uh, an atmosphere of conformity, which virtually everybody would agree. We now live in a society, wh whether it's in academia, whether it's in the public, uh, you know, in entertainment, uh, in everyday conversation where people are beside themselves, that they are somehow going to say something that will not result in them being criticized, but result in them being canceled. I, I totally agree that cancel culture is a problem. Where I disagree with, with the way that the problem is stated by conservatives is that it's only a problem on the left. Yep. It's, a, it's a problem for both sides. Absolutely. We've seen this especially with authoritarian-minded uh, populists on the right as well as on the left. I, I absolutely agree. There is a polarization going on where conservatives and liberals or progressives, liberals kind of don't exist anymore. Like liberals are kind of like Neanderthal man or something, you know? Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's where I don't exist. You're right. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, but compared to 20 or 30 years ago and, um, you know, and, and conservatives today are not conservatives of, you know, I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan would look kind of like Mitt Romney today when you, when you go through his policies and things like that. So conservatives have gotten further to the right. Progressives have gotten further to the left. They actually represent fewer and fewer people in the population. When you look at surveys, the number of people who will say I'm a Republican or a Democrat as proxy for these positions or liberal or, you know, liberal and conservative, you know, more people are moving towards away from those labels. But they get to control the conversation because of the way politics in this country is set up. I agree. I mean, we need to look at cancel culture or calls to deplatform and delegitimize people because of arguments. Uh, because of words. Uh, Ted Cruz, you know, to take one example, or Ron DeSantis in Florida, these are, they're not interested in open debate. I mean, Ron DeSantis pushed for and passed a, you know, a state level gag order, which prevents, you know, certain words and concepts being taught in K through 12 education. Almost all of those laws are being pushed by conservatives who in every other context are saying, you know what, we need to have local control of everything, including schools, except when it has something to do with possibly not freaking out over, uh, you know, somebody having two dads or two moms or being trans, you know, then it has to be done at the state level because local control is a bad thing. Like, you know, and, and the left or, you know, Democrats, uh, you know, have their own version of this kind of hypocrisy. This is one of the powers of the libertarian perspective, I think, is that, um, you know, it, 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 it attempts for a consistency. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies, and we're speaking with Nick Gillespie. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So now we're moving on to topic three, inflation, which is going up fast. In March, it rose at an annual rate of over 8%, the highest in 40 years. What's the reason? Elizabeth Warren blames rising prices on greedy corporations. The White House has used the phrase Putin price hike. Conservatives blame inflation on high government spending. Supply chain disruptions caused by the pandemic are certainly part of it. So who's right? I think the, the largest factor in the inflation we're experiencing right now does come from a kind of Milton Friedman, the libertarian economist point of view. And he, he made this argument more than he should have, but he said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Um, and what that means is, you know, in 2019, under Donald Trump, the federal government spent $4.4 trillion, a record for a single year budget. Two years later, in, in 2021, we spent $6.8 trillion. There was effectively a 50% increase just in what the federal government was spending. And then the Federal Reserve was also pumping money in. They have various ways of creating more cash uh, or more money in the economy. We have a phenomenon of too many dollars chasing too few goods. Um, and that is inflationary. And that's where Friedman, I think, is fundamentally right, that inflation is it has a large component that is caused by monetary policy and fiscal policy. That explains most of it. There could be if the supply of something is limited for a variety of reasons, but demand is stays high or grows, you know, that can be a form of inflation because prices will go up. Um, but fundamentally, what's going on here is that the government has spent the past few years because of COVID spending a massive amount of money. You don't cure inflation by giving people more free money. You don't cure inflation by printing more money. You do it in a bunch of different ways, including raising interest rates pretty sharply, which is something that happened in the late uh, in the in the early 80s and broke the back of inflation. You do it by reducing government spending or you do it by raising taxes, by sucking money out of the economy, all painful ways. Um, and if you don't do those sooner, they end up dragging on and on and causing more problems when the bubble, you know, finally, or when the boil has to be lanced. So how would a more libertarian approach to government policies help head this off in the first place? Yeah, well, uh, you know, let's talk about COVID relief. Uh, you know, basically, and, and again, this is something under Trump, uh, you know, and a Democratic Congress, but also under Biden and a Democratic Congress with, you know, with Republican buy-in. Um, we spent so much money, shoveled so much money at people, irrelevant uh, to their needs. But 
the way a, a libertarian would do this, or my sort of libertarian is that in COVID, there were people who were knocked on their asses and they needed help. You send them, you target the aid. You don't give people, there were households making up to $400,000 who were getting checks from the government, you know, and payouts and things like that. And when you flood the economy with that much money, that much doll, you know, that many dollars, of course it is going to lead to inflation. So, you know, in the broadest terms possible, we have been spending more than we've been taking in for decades. Um, this story does not end well. At some point you have to pull government outlays and government revenue into rough accord with one another. Otherwise you have, you know, booms and busts. You have the government spending more and more money, borrowing more and more money to spend things on, uh, spend on things people don't need. Interest rates are going to go up. That's going to bust the federal budget more than it is already. So the basic thing to do is like recognize the government isn't here to be all things to all people. It should adjudicate, you know, it should create a framework so people can get around, you know, can get along. And then it should target help to people who need it. But upper middle class people, middle class people, like we don't need most of the money that the government is shell shelling our way in order to buy our votes. I have some pushback. One, you talk about uh, rising inflation as if it's if it's just a U.S. problem, mm -hmm. and it's going on all over the world. And why is it going on over all over the world? Not just because of government spending, but because of supply chain disruptions. Um, conservatives and libertarians have predicted inflation for probably the last two decades. I can't tell you the number of times I've read Wall Street Journal editorials that have said inflation is just around the corner. And right. it wasn't. Um, they were wrong. A lot of the reason for inflation is that you have demand for a product and the supply has been disrupted because of coronavirus. The biggest difference in the economy today compared with several years ago has been the pandemic uh, rather than just uh, government spending. The main cause is government spending. And I believe that because you don't have, you know, George Bush increased federal spending and inflation adjusted terms over eight years by about 50 percent. Uh, we did it in two years. That's a massive spike in spending and it leads to inflation. And I think the earlier overspending just set the stage for this. You know, it's like a big gas uh, pool of gas. And then this last couple of years was the match on top of it. You know, the Democrats aren't talking about, you know, what we should do is like take off a bunch of constraints on the market, you know, increase housing in San Francisco, increase housing in New York City by 50 percent. You know, they're willing to, to, to increase spending by 50 percent, but not housing or energy. Biden has gone through, you know, a, a series of things that are going to reduce the ability of America to uh, increase uh, energy supply, which means that prices are also going to stay pretty high. And that brings us to topic number four. As we record this podcast, Elon Musk, the world's richest person, is in the process of buying Twitter in case you hadn't heard that news. Uh, should any one person have that much money, that much power? What should we do about this extraordinary inequality in income between the super billionaires and the rest of us? Income inequality is a red herring. Uh, our standards of living have nothing to do with how much money Elon Musk has. Um, and the, the thing that we should be looking at is income mobility. Uh, you know, can you start out low and go high? Is the average or the median standard of living increasing? All signs point to yes on both of those scores, despite media narratives to the contrary. Elon Musk, you know, is a billionaire because he's produced a bunch of products and services that people like. Um, I don't have a problem with that. 
you know, people like Muammar Gaddafi, the, uh, you know, the dead Libyan dictator, he amassed a fortune of like $200 billion. That's bad billionaire stuff because he stole it. And if we can't make a fundamental distinction between people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and people like Muammar Gaddafi, people like Putin, you know, you're not bringing a very sophisticated analysis to the table. So wrapping this up, Nick, do you think that the recent war invasion of Ukraine has concentrated our minds on the need to defend freedom and protect the rights that we all enjoy that are not enjoyed in authoritarian nations and dictatorships? The invasion of Ukraine, unwarranted by uh, you know, Russia and by uh, Putin, it has reminded people that uh, you know, the world that we take for granted can be rocked asunder in all sorts of ways. I think you know, the most important lesson of foreign policy, certainly in the past 20 years of the United States, really is the disastrous uh, uh, consequences of our invasion and occupation uh, of Afghanistan and then Iraq. Uh, because we, we went into those places saying that we were going to bring freedom and liberty and, and independence, and we did not do any of those things. And then we left in a way where we did not even honor our obligations to the people who worked with us there, especially in Afghanistan. So I want to take a moment as we kind of rally around the flagpole of, um, you know, of kind of liberal interventionism in Ukraine. This is a war of good versus evil. You know, uh, we Americans need to own our disastrous foreign policy. And just in the past 20 years, we said we were going to accomplish certain things in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we didn't. And I think we need to keep that in mind, because what worries me about the Ukraine situation is people seem there's a pent up demand among Americans to be on the side of good. It's an uncomplicated war, et cetera. But in fact, the whole situation in Europe is complicated. What I think is best about this outcome is that the other major powers of, uh, of Europe, uh, places like uh, Germany, Italy, France, uh, the UK, are actually taking um, some leadership for their region of the world and saying, you know what, we're, we're going to be more active here. The fact Trump, who I was not a fan of, was right to intuit, he couldn't articulate in these terms, America is being decentered. There is no country that is going to rule the world in a unipolar way or in a hegemonic way. Um, this is what a post-America as Globocop looks like. Europe takes care of its problems. Uh, other parts of the world will take care of their problems. And the U.S. has to learn a bit of humility, um, which it should, you know, that should be the primary lesson of the 21st century and our foreign uh, policy. Nick, we can't let you go without hitting on this news from the past week that our government in its wisdom has decided it needs to protect us all from the scourge of disinformation and is setting up a disinformation governance board inside the Department of Homeland Security. So... I think I can guess what what the libertarian uh, stance on this is, but tell us a little bit about this DGB, as <laughs> it might be called. Yeah, what it means. You know, I mean, uh, you know, to put this in context, Vox, the you know very progressive media site in 2015, Vox said DHS should be abolished. It's duplicative and inefficient in what it does. Everything it's being, everything it does is already being done by other places, even worse. So, like, we don't need an extra thing. This is. You know, somehow it's going to be monitoring disinformation and misinformation of foreign countries. 
uh, that are, you know, somehow have something to do with the U.S. Maybe, um, you know, the DHS and the, uh, inf you know, the intelligence state the, uh, has a long history of overstepping boundaries and doing things, you know, levying its power uh, against American citizens and things like that. I think it's a bad sign. And it's also a desperate sign. Uh, this is a government that has lost the thread of what it should be doing and then what it might do in order to kind of generate I don't know, you know, bread and circuses for people. The other thing I'll say about it, which is deeply worrying from a free speech perspective, the woman who's heading it, Nina Jankowitz, uh, has written two books, uh, one about online harassment and one about uh, disinformation, particularly about Russia. And she was a big believer in the Steele dossier and the Russia hoax type of stuff that has been disproven, but she doesn't really cop to that. But this is bad when the government is starting to be taken over by people who really challenge the idea that you know it, you know disinformation is what the government says it is that shouldn't be the way we should all be devolving our definitions of disinformation and misinformation to the individual level um, i am the best arbiter of what i consider information misinformation disinformation if the government's going to do anything they should be teaching media literacy in a way that people can start to you know, kind of like uh, upgrade their BS detectors. Yeah, that's the strongest argument you made to me. Do we really want the government deciding what disinformation is? No, I mean, this. <laughs> no, of course that's, not. That's a problem. Nick Gillespie, thank you very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Thank you. Coming next, our recommendation. And this week, Jim, you have the floor. Well, Richard, you know, I've been kind of obsessed with birds and I'm always interested in science. So my recommendation this week is a really neat book called The Most Perfect Thing. It's about the science and natural history of eggs, how birds lay them, how they form, how they've evolved, even down to the question of do shorebirds lay pointy eggs because it, they roll in a smaller circle so they won't roll off the cliff into the sea and questions like that. And uh, Burkhead is a, um, is a noted ornithologist scientist in Britain, but also a lovely writer. And he, has, he really gets into his fascination with birds and their eggs. So I, I recommend this. Can I just say that the loveliest thing right now, this spring, about living near the coast here in Connecticut is the loudest sound I hear between, say, about 7 a.m. and 8 a.m. before the rest of the world really gets going is the sound of birds. There's just a cacophony of shrieks and songs that are a delight. To hear. Yeah, this is the magical season. If you love birds, the birds that are here all year start singing a lot more, the cardinals and the robins, and you have all these migrants coming through. And let me just make a point. It's migration season, so there's things you can do to help birds migrate. Leave off your exterior lights. If you have a business, turn down the lights or off the lights at night and tell those lawn crews that work on your yard, lay off the blowers and all of that stuff for the next uh, month or so. Let the birds migrate, let them feed and, and move on through because these birds are really challenged in their lives today and habitats. The more we can do to keep these habitats natural, the better for them. That's a nice piece of advice. Thanks, Jim. Next, our conversation. 
Nick Gillespie, um, guest on our podcast. I was a little bit surprised by how much I agreed with him, although the one thing, of course, I'll highlight the thing I disagree with him on, which is which is the view on uh, way more choice on public education. I, I'm very much for charter schools, but I do think that that if you gave every parent thirty thousand dollars, for instance, in New York uh, for uh, the cost of their child's education per year, that it would just lead to a to a free for all and a complete mess. I think that we should proceed with caution when it comes to completely splitting up and breaking uh, the public education model as it now is. We just need to be cautious. Uh, my view on this is the current system's not working. It's it's destroying the futures of poor people. And I trust them to make decisions, those families to make decisions about what's best for their children more than I trust Randy Weingarten and the, the school bureaucracy who have manifestly, utterly failed our nation's uh our nation's children. Phrases like bureaucracy and the leader of a national teachers union are, are easy to to throw into a conversation, but sometimes we don't listen to the local voices like the teachers. But let's move to the uh, the, the broader point as, as opposed to the individual issues. I wanted to go through a number of different issues, policy debates right now on this, because what's so interesting to me about the libertarian position is it often gives you a way to sidestep the opposition of left and right and just say, what are you guys arguing about? There's a third way to do this. And often that third way is to do less. Maybe not every problem has to be solved by the government. If you leave more power in the hand of individuals and, and less power in the hands of government, less money in the hands of government, some of these problems get sorted out at the local level by communities and families on their own. When you think that every solution has to come from the federal government, yes, of course, we're going to fight over that. You and I disagree about this because what I would argue we what we need is not smaller government, but smarter government and simpler delivery of services. We need to rally for government as well as criticize government in its current form. But this is probably a subject for a separate podcast. And, uh, by the way, we've the last two episodes we've looked at conservatives or or we've we've had one on the right. We've had one on libertarians. We got to do one on the left. Sure. So I got to figure out i gotta figure that out <laughs> it's so, how do we fix it i'm, I'm jim, richard davies oh sorry one more time it's how do we fix it say that again it's how do we fix it i'm, I'm jim. richard davies oh sorry sorry go ahead. oh you you say sorry okay let's do no, do it the regular okay. way yeah no, okay it's how do we fix it i'm richard davies and i'm jim meggs and i'm right <laughs> <laughs> our producers miranda schaefer and we are production of davies content we make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. check out our line of stuff at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.